So the title of my sermon is Alone. And I've heard that there's a TV show at the moment. Haven't seen it. Um, unfortunately, the one I have seen is Naked and Afraid. And I, I don't know whether you've seen that one, but that production team, I don't know what was going through their mind when they sat in that production room and thought, hey, let's put a group of people naked. What could they possibly do? You know, they could squat around a fire, build a fire, walk through the jungle naked and thought that was a good idea. That is not a good idea from any camera angle possible. So anyway, um, ponder that thought. But no, I'm talking about alone. And there are two big questions and big ideas that I want to unpack with you today. And that is, when you feel alone, firstly, where are you? Where are you? And the second question is, how did you get there? And the true understanding I hope that you walk away with today is that you are never truly ever alone. You see, I love this. There are no coincidences with God and him in his world. And it is no coincidence that the word alone contains the word one. And in our case, the one I'm obviously referring to is our eternal father. And the word one in the word alone sits as a permanent fixed reminder that he is always with us. You know, in my naivety of first, you know, pondering this, this message and receiving the revelation of the one within alone earlier in the year, I had a really limited understanding of what feeling alone really means. I am an only child, so I quite like my alone space. I go to dinner by myself. I go to the movies by myself. I know I'm a bit weird, but as I said, I'm an only child and that doesn't really, alone, feeling alone, a sense of alone, I understand it and I, I felt it from time to time, but I didn't really have a true understanding of what it really feels like. But as I came closer, and this is what the Holy Spirit always does, doesn't he? That as you come closer and closer to speaking about it or, you know, experiencing it, you have to live it. And this week I did carry, I'll be honest with you and fully transparent, a real burden this week at a sense of feeling alone, feeling isolated. Um, you know, it's, it can be surrounded by the most incredible support network. You can have a multitude of friends, followers these days, I don't know. Um, or you can work as part of an incredible team in your workplace. But you can always have plenty of people around you but you can still feel alone and isolated, uh, whether through people maybe not understanding you, maybe you're carrying a role that you feel, you know, you just can't, no one understands you, you can't do it yourself, and you feel siloed um, and alone in that walk. The lie that we, myself included, can be blindsided by is that we are, never, we are alone. We're not alone. One of the greatest misconceptions or attacks from the enemy is drawing you into a deep feeling of isolation. Nothing thrills the enemy more than making you feel like you're alone, separated from and taking your focus from the truth that is the one is always with us. And so that is like the context, I guess you could say for today. I want to take a deep dive into the story of Elijah. 
Now, how actually, how do you sum up the extraordinary life of the man that Elijah was? He is truly one of my absolute favourite figures of the Old Testament. And there's so much to his narrative that it's really sometimes kind of impossible to capture in 20 minutes, an hour, two hours. No, just kidding. Um, and, you know, as quickly as I'll get through this um, in one sermon. But the three events that I want to focus particularly on today are Number one, when he stands before King Ahab. Number two, the mountain miracle. And number three, the depths of despair that Elijah reaches. Now, at the time of Elijah's life and his story, he sort of just pops in a narrative in the middle of Kings, sort of don't hear a lineage or see a lineage of him come to to pass, but bang, Elijah appears. And we read that King Ahab is sitting on the throne as the king of Israel Um, at this time and the Bible describes King Ahab as doing more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him and coupled with this is the is the picture that in fact the woman he's married to is Jezebel she's also evil through and through so evil they are as a pair that they prioritize and use their power and authority to kill all the prophets of the Lord. And so this is the climate that Elijah, a prophet of the Lord, is living under, a rule that consistently and constantly threatens his life. So if you knew that the king wanted you dead, where where should you be? The last place you should be is standing before him. I mean, don't you think? Someone wants to kill you, where should you go? Hi, here I am. Well, that's exactly what Elijah did. So God sent sent Elijah to face the man that wanted to kill him. That is a big plot twist right there. And so when you picture this moment, you picture Elijah standing as public enemy number one in front of the king. And I imagine his officials and all his entourage are around him. He's standing before all that against him. And Ahab recognises Elijah and identifies him and says, is that you, troubler of Israel? Imagine that. Imagine that moment when you know that you're in fear of your life. But no, Elijah does not shy away. He doesn't stand down. He doesn't cower away. He doesn't, you know, walk away, just think, I can't do this. But no, Elijah not only stands there, but he speaks up and he speaks back to the most powerful man on all the earth. What a picture. What a picture. He says this to King Ahab. I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. Like, could you... Could you imagine that, standing up against the man who wants to kill you and says, oh, I'm not the trouble, you're the trouble. He's singing Taylor Swift's song back to him. You're the problem, it's you. And he says, you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So he's saying, 
he's not only just saying, hey, you know, it's your fault. Well, now he's giving a commandment to the king of Israel. Would you walk into King Charles's room and say, Oi, Charles, I've got some news for you. Let's do this. Would you think that would happen? No, and this is the man they want to kill. It just blows, well, it blows my mind anyway. So Ahab sent word. So then Ahab does. Like, I just love it. So Ahab sent word and then standing before all the people, so all the subjects under Ahab's rule, in front of the prophets and all the people, Elijah stands there alone. And he says this to the crowd watching him. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So you've got this whole crowd of people and you can literally hear a pin drop. That's how I interpret it. People said nothing. So let's just examine this picture. We have the 450 prophets of Baal. We have the 400 prophets of Ashereth. So in my maths, it's 850 people. But then we have Elijah standing alone. All the people are there and he is alone. Whoever and however many there are, there is Elijah. No other prophets with him, just Elijah. And I'm sure when the people saw him, they didn't see that there was one in his alone. And the other side of the story is that Elijah's not phased. He's not aware he's alone. In fact, he taunts the other prophets. I mean, talk about some confidence on, on him. He's so sure of who God is. He's just screaming, tell your prophets to shout louder. In 1 Kings, I haven't got this as a slide because I added it yesterday. Um, it says 1 Kings 18, 27 to 29. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought. Like he's got some humour about him. I love him. Or is he busy or travelling? Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted, and this is the prophets, louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, so desperate for a response from their, their God, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Like they are in a frenzy. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there, of course, was no response no one answered and no one paid attention. And then we jump down to 1 Kings 18, 36 to 37. It says, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So not only does he have this amazing sense of humour, but he has a deep revelation of who he serves. He's just a, a superhero of the Bible. <clears throat> this was such a mountain moment in Elijah's narrative where God was given all the glory. And even though Elijah appeared alone, he wasn't alone at all. God was always there, showcasing his majesty and demonstrating his authority, turning the hearts of the people back towards him. Elijah is definitely trouble for Ahab. 
And then when Jezebel gets wind that all her prophets have been slaughtered and demoralized all in that lovely moment, she was not a happy camper, let me tell you. And this is where the story takes a big turn for Elijah. And what strikes me as incredibly telling about the human side of Elijah is that even though he has stood up to the, to the king, he stood up to the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and then he stood up to the crowd who are all subjects of Ahab. The minute he hears that Jezebel is now after him, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. So he let fear in this moment overwhelm him and he let fear of death and the fear of Jezebel, a woman, because we know a woman's wrath apparently, um, drive him from where he needed to be. It just hits home on a really humanistic level for me. I think this extraordinary man, you know, we sometimes have to cut ourselves some slack, I think, but this extraordinary man who saw and witnessed and was a catalyst and an agent for God to move powerfully. But, you know, it brought him, it just brought him undone. And underneath, he was quite ordinary because he ran and because he was afraid. And Elijah says this, he says, I have had enough, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. So he became quite suicidal, if we're being honest. And even though then God sustains his life by sending an angel, he spirals into a state of depression and travels further into the wilderness, physically and emotionally. It says Elijah travels for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness until he reaches the Mount of God. Obviously a great parallel to Moses' story. But it is a perfect, perfect picture of what and where we sometimes find ourselves. Feeling alone when we really aren't. Or isolating ourselves in our fear or our feelings. And believing the lie that no one understands what I'm going through. No one feels the way I feel and are wandering away from where we should be and the revelation that the one is with us before we finally do actually come to God. Finally, we think it's, all, it's time to climb the mountain and get out of the wilderness. <clears throat> and in Elijah's story, God asks him the simple and profound question, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's not just about Elijah's physical state because, believe me, our sovereign Lord, all-knowing, knows exactly where he is. But he asks Elijah to articulate exactly his perception of the situation. Love it. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. And God answers, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord and behold the Lord pass by. 
and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Elijah was never alone. And that is where the one God always is, with us in the small spaces, the alone spaces, the feeling spaces. So God asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, if God asks you the same question again, you really haven't got it. The revelation of the moment, God is waiting for you to finally realise what is actually going on. Again, that lovely picture of the humanity of Elijah. <clears throat> the truth is that Elijah wandered away from where he should be. He wandered and ran into the wilderness, away from God's plan and where God wanted him to be, simply because he felt he was alone, not remembering that one is always with him. So how does God reply? God doesn't say, oh, look, there, there, Elijah, you've had it really tough. Come on, you, you know, you'll be all right. You can go on. No, he says, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. The question God originally asks Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And the answer that God gives is, go back the way you came. God's response highlights that Elijah was in the wrong place. The wrong place physically and the wrong place in his perception of the situation. And instead of God creating a way out, he creates a way back. Meaning sometimes we have to go back on the path, back to the place where we were, go back to the situation and face what is there waiting for us. And of course, we know Elijah returns and kicks some royal butt, doesn't he? He was an absolute world changer because of what God did through him. He was a kingdom crushing machine that saw a mountain miracle yet also fell into a state of depression and God was with him in both moments. He was there at the highest of highs on his mountain miracle moment but he was also with him in his lowest of lows and that is the, that is the perception and in that perception in those moments Elijah had two very different experiences and very, two very different perceptions of the moment, even though in both cases he was alone with the one. And as I said at the start, the idea of being alone and that feeling of isolation, of loneliness, is an incredibly real concept. <clears throat> You can be 
in the loudest gathering of people possible and feel total isolation. I might just ask the team if they might come up. <clears throat> Did the lid too tight? That's my mistake. <laughs> it's all right. You know, that feeling of isolation, feeling of being alone, even though you've got support networks and friends all around you, but you can feel a sense of total isolation, of feeling no one understands me. It doesn't have to be a cave away from the world. It doesn't have to be physically alone. It's not about physical loneliness, but it might be about emotional loneliness. And that feeling of being alone, like I experienced this week, just grips you, grips you. So you can't feel like you can't breathe. You feel like you can't overcome. You might carry the weight of decisions. It could be the weight of finances. It could be the weight of family. It can be the weight of a whole lot of feelings that make you feel like you are isolated and no one understands but I'm actually sick to death and I'm righteously angry at the lie that the enemy keeps telling us. He keeps perpetuating this feeling of isolation and that you are alone. It is such a weak, repetitive playbook. It couldn't be further from the truth. And that is that the battle we face and that we feel alone in are nothing and not true in the perspective of the battle fought and won by Jesus. The one standing with us overcame sin and death. The enemy is defeated forevermore. We stand in righteous purpose and victory. We stand in promises and we stand in a hope for our extraordinary future. And as the battle rages, And as the decisions and the weight of those decisions come bearing down on us, we stand with one in us. There is no chasm, no realm, no canyon, no void that separates us from Jesus. He is with us always. And today we stand against the strongholds of loneliness. We cry out no more will we be gripped by the thoughts that we are ever, ever, ever alone. There is always one in the storm, one in the battle, one in the seas, one in our situations, one in our workplace, one in our families. There is always one always one with us. Don't believe the lie any further. 
for a minute longer, we are not alone. We are not alone. There is one, one in the alone. Now I've asked a team to sing a particular song today. I feel it's the anthem for this entire sermon, if I can be so bold to request an anthem for a sermon. But it proclaims the name of Jesus. It proclaims that we are not alone. So let's create some supernatural waves today. Let's break the strongholds of feelings today. I feel like there's a line drawn in the sand today where if you've ever felt this way and you still believe that annoying lie from the pits of hell, no more, we're not alone. We're victory, victorious. We we claim the victory because the battle has already been won. So can I invite you to stand to your feet? And when you ever have that weight of feeling alone, remember there is always one in your alone.